good morning. How you guys doing? It's good to see everyone. I missed one week, and I feel like I haven't been here forever. And my Bible took the whole stand down. I'm going to lift it up. All right, so it's good to be here. Good to see you all in this new year. And uh, where we're at, if, if you've been with us for quite some time, is we're going through the book of Luke. And we are at the very end of chapter 19, which means that we are getting to the very end of the book of Luke. I feel like, I don't know, what, two years? It's been a, it's been a process. And, and where we're at in, in the story, because Luke is a story, um, it, it's a story about Jesus, but it is very much a story. It's very much literature. And where we're at in that story is Jesus just left the final city that he was in before he heads to Jerusalem. And he, he just left Jericho. And if you know your Bible, the, the Jericho, a, a big event happened and the walls fell down and, and all that. And, and Jesus just left there and he's heading into Jerusalem. And we, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Caleb walked us through his entrance as a king. And Jesus entered in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And everyone shouted Hosanna, everyone praised him. And he came in as a, as a king, and yet there was a group of people that we've heard a lot about that weren't exactly excited of what Jesus was doing. And so if we, we look at Luke chapter 19, verse 39 and 40, Pastor Caleb went over this. This is just a review for you guys. Um, 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, when the crowd was praising him, that praise in the Pharisee's mind is reserved only for God himself. And so it would have been right for them to rebuke him if he's not God. If he doesn't deserve that praise, it would be right for them. And so they rebuked him. And what Jesus said is, is very interesting. He says, I tell you that if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And you may be like, that's kind of a weird thing to say, Jesus, but that's using the Old Testament to say that I am God without him actually saying that. And so from that moment on, the Pharisees were, were ready to do away with this Jesus. And so we are leading into what many people call the Passion Week, which is where Jesus is ultimately crucified. Um, and <laughs> it's going to take us a little longer than a week, but we're starting to head that direction. Okay, and so if you guys were sitting here while Pastor Bo was reading, oftentimes our scripture reading, I feel like, can be a time of encouragement, right? Where we read scripture and we come away and we're like really pumped, and yet the, the passage that Pastor Bo read, because that was the passage I put down, was anything but encouraging. See, that, that passage came from Jeremiah, and what Jeremiah was describing was the fall of the city of Jerusalem and ultimately the fall of the temple where they would worship God. The Babylonians came in and they destroyed it all. It was a very traumatic event in the history of Israel. There's a, there's a term in psychology called, um, I probably should grab my notes, shouldn't I, before we get there, but it is like a shared trauma or generational trauma. And generational trauma, this is the Google definition, says that when the impact of a traumatic event isn't limited to the person who directly experienced it, right? 
it can also influence their children, grandchildren, and even their community. Right? So a lot of times what happens is when there's a traumatic event, that not only the person who experienced that trauma experiences it, but it actually goes on to everyone. And they'll see like three, four generations down the road, that family behaves differently because of that trauma. And so this event that Jeremiah described is in line with that. See, you read the, what we read earlier was the history of that event, and yet I have a more poetic version of it. This is Jeremiah in Lamentations describing what he felt. We pick up here in, in Lamentations chapter 1. We're getting there. How she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There is no one to offer her comfort, not one for all of her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery, but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her master. Her enemies are at ease, for the Lord has made her suffer because of many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversity, her adversary. All the splendor has vanished from daughter Zion. Her leaders are like stags. They find no pasture. They stumble away exhausted before the hunter. Okay, so what is Jeremiah doing? He's describing the fall of Israel and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, like a woman getting taken in the captive. Right? Do you feel the passion of Jeremiah as he watches this happen? You can almost feel the word lament means to mourn, to cry out. And so this lament that he is doing is crying out for the city that is being destroyed the place that he knew, the place where they would go to worship God was destroyed before their eyes, and it almost felt like not only was the city destroyed, but their very way of worshiping God was destroyed. So what do you guys think? Do you think that's going to cause some generational trauma? Yeah, right? They, they understand. So what happens is they go into captivity for 70 years, they're in captivity in Babylon. And while they're there, the, the religious leaders start to think back. Why did this happen? And the answer that they come up with is the right answer, that they worshipped other gods, that they forsake their god for other gods. Right? And so what do you think they're going to do? They're going to try to try to stop it. And so we are introduced to two groups of people and how to get Israel back on track. The first people are the group that we've heard a lot about, which is the Pharisees. 
And the Pharisee said, because we sinned, because we worshipped other gods, this happened, so let us not do that again. And so they created these crazy, strict rules to not lead them into disobedience again. And then there's another group that we haven't seen a whole lot about, and that group is called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees kind of took a different approach. They're like, hey, let's just be a little bit more loose with the rules. Let's kind of embrace the culture, and let's see what happens. And so at, around Jesus' time, we actually have these two groups that are in the, the religious center that are leading the, the temple. That they're, the, they're the main religious leaders. And that's what we're going to see moving forward. Those two groups are going to be very important moving forward. But now we actually enter into the, the text. So Jesus enters in Jerusalem after the great procession in. And we see him here in verse 41, as he says, as he approached and saw the city. What do you think Jesus did? Rejoiced? He wept for the city. If you knew this day would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Kind of interesting way of Jesus coming to the city. But we got to ask ourselves, what is, what is really going on here? Why is this the emotion that when Jesus sees Jerusalem, why is this what it sparks? Before we do that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I just ask that this morning that, that you speak. Lord, I just pray that as we read your, your, your text, Lord, that you speak to us, Lord, that you get me out of the way and that as we dive deep into your scriptures that we find the truth that you want for us. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name, amen. Earlier I mentioned to you that what we're reading is not simply just excerpts that we are supposed to take simply on their own. I think one thing that we, a mistake that we can easily make when we read the Bible is we take Bible verses and we just take them on their own. Or we take Bible sections and we take them on their own. And we don't realize that the entire work is actually supposed to be woven together. So in the book of Luke, who do you guys think wrote the book of Luke? Luke, right? 
pretty easy. I gave you guys a softball there, right? And so Luke was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Instead, he was someone who kind of came along. He, he, he's known to be a doctor. He's a very smart man and gave, at the very beginning, what it tells us is an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And by doing that, he, he spoke to a lot of eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, and he kind of took down their story, and he put it in an ordered ma- manner. And so if you are a writer of any book, a good writer will constantly keep, draw you back to the beginning of where you're at. So if we look at Luke chapter 2, to start off, when Jesus is born, he's brought into Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, do I have it on the screen up there or not? I didn't put it in. All right. I'll read it for you here. You're going to have to take my word. So we're going to read in verse 36 and 38 through 38, all right? Luke chapter 2, there was a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanael, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment when she saw Jesus, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So when Jesus entered in the city with his parents, he's probably around two years old at this time, He enters in, and this prophetess who had been praying in the temple, she's at least 84 years old. She was married, in this text it says, for 84 years, so she's probably close to 100 years old. She's been prophesying, waiting for this Messiah, and as soon as she sees this baby, what she does is she goes up to his family and says, "I've, I've seen it. And she tells everyone in Jerusalem with great joy. She tells everyone about this child. And those who are waiting for the redemption, they say, hey, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. So what Luke wanted you to get at the very beginning is the first time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's accepted with what? With joy. People look on him and they praise God. And that's in contrast to the last time he's in Jerusalem when he's accepted with what? Weeping. He weeps. So we're supposed to see when Jesus first enters in Jerusalem, there's a lot of joy. And the second time, there's a lot of sorrow. I, as I was reading the commentary, this is what he said. Jesus is the royal Davidic Messiah, who must suffer and die. He is received with joy in Jerusalem at his birth, but he weeps for Jerusalem at his death. Jesus is the victor and the victim. No understanding or proclamation of Jesus is complete that does not observe or affirm affirm both as essential and inseparable. Inseparable elements in the divine mystery incarnate in Jesus. 
So if we don't get the fact that Jesus is at one, the victor, but also the victim, then we don't truly understand who Jesus is. But we keep reading here. So if we go back, what Jesus says here is, if you knew that this day would bring peace, but it is now hidden from your eyes. What do you think he means? What, what do you mean, what does Jesus do when he comes and he sees Jerusalem and he says, if you knew that this would bring you peace, if you only knew who I was, if you only knew what I was coming to do, you would bring peace. See, in order to truly understand what Jesus is doing here, you have to also understand that what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees thought that by living by the law, by following God to the best of their ability, and one thing that they missed is they did not love the sinner, that they condemned the sinner. They, they looked at those who committed sins, and they said, you're the reason why we're in captivity to Rome. You're the reason why. And so they hated, all, they hated the prostitute. They hated the tax collector because they thought they were the reason why they were in captivity, and they did not understand that they also were to blame. See, the, the Pharisee got the religion part right in the sense of doing the right thing, but what they constantly got wrong was loving the right people. And one thing that we have seen over and over and over again in the book of Luke is that Jesus loves the sinner, that Jesus does care about the law, that Jesus did come to fulfill the law, but in the midst, he did not want to miss out on the sinner. Right? So what did the Pharisees, what did the Israelites get wrong from the beginning is what they got is they did not love the sinner. They did not love the foreigner. They did not love the poor. For the days will come when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. In Isaiah chapter 29, Jesus is quoting that. It says here in 29 verse 3, it says, I will camp in a circle around you. I will besiege you with earth ramps, and I will set up my siege tower against you. If you, look, if you drop down to verse 13, it says, Because these people approach me with their mouth to honor me with lip service, Yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules. So back in Isaiah's day, Israel's condemned because of that. Because they worship me with their mouths, but not with their actions. And so what is, why is Jesus quoting this? Because he says it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again, Jerusalem. You have generational trauma because of what happened in your past. And guess what? You're still doing it because you worship me with your mouth. But you do not worship me with your heart. The Pharisees were great at making rules. The religious leaders were great at making rules so they would not worship Baal again, but in their hearts, they're worshiping themselves, which is just as bad as worshiping Baal. 
they will crush you and your children among you to the ground. There's a psalm, Psalm 137.9. It's a psalm that the Israelites sing. It's said to be taken place by the rivers of Babylon. So after they're taken in the captivity, they're, they're by the rivers and their captors ask them to sing a song. And so what they finish their song with is they say, may your children be dashed upon the rocks. Crazy psalm, right? You read that and you feel really inspired. But what that meant, like what that was, it was a common phrase to mean ultimate destruction. And what Israel was praying was that one day Babylon feels the same judgment that they are feeling at that moment. That God rescues them. And we also see it in Hosea. We also see it in Nahum. That this epitaph of like of destruction happens where your children are dashed upon the rocks. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. He's saying that you're actually going to be the ones who are judged just like you prayed that Babylon was judged. And you're going to be judged because you're just as bad as Babylon was. That your hearts are just as far away as Babylon's. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. The city will be completely destroyed because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. So if you read the Old Testament, this word here for visitation usually means a time when God would come. God would come and reveal himself to his people, and what would happen if you, miss, if you missed it? If God came and told you to do something, and yet you didn't do it, there's always judgment that follows. There's always judgment that comes. And so what Jesus is saying is, God was in your midst, Jerusalem. That you had the opportunity to turn and repent. You had the opportunity to worship me. You had the opportunity to do it, and you didn't. God himself visited you. What is Jesus saying? I am God, and I'm here. I'm with you right now. And you had the opportunity to repent, but guess what? You didn't. If you follow the history of, of Jerusalem and, and Israel past the time of Jesus, past the time of the Bible, you, we there's a Jewish historian who describes the second fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. And it, it brings back the same images of what happened in Babylon, and Jesus sees it. Jesus sees that if you continue down this path to where you are trying to fight against the Romans and you're not trusting that I'm the Savior who came to die for you, but you need to do it on your own, what's going to happen is you're going to be destroyed by Rome. That that oppressor that you are trying to fight against will end up destroying you. And in AD 70, about 40 years later, that's exactly what happens. That Rome comes and destroys Jerusalem a second time. And guess what? If you go to Israel right now, 
you will not see a temple. Because it doesn't exist anymore. Because for the last 2,000 years, there has been no temple there because the Romans destroyed it and it's never been rebuilt again. Jesus looked at the people and he wept because he loved them. A few weeks ago, we looked at a parable of the minas, right? And the last phrase that it talks about is that the, the king slaughters his enemies in front of, in front of him. And, and I, I wanted to encourage you that Jesus is not that evil king, Herod. Instead, he actually died for his enemies. That Jesus actually cares about his enemies. Jesus actually cares about those who reject him. And yes, there is absolute judgment. There will be judgment. We see it. There's judgment. AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. And yet Jesus does not take it smiling. Jesus looks at what's about to happen. He looks at the future and says, Jerusalem, I'm going to weep for you. And that word weeping is not just a tear coming down his eye, but that is a, a word that most likely means wailing. That word is audible weeping. It is a lot of passion. And that's where Jesus is. If you keep reading, we're going to move on, but if, if you keep reading in Luke chapter 2, the very next story is this very interesting thing where Jesus enters in the temple. And Jesus enters in the temple at 12 years old and starts teaching and everyone is mystified. Right? Everyone's listening to him. They're like, this 12-year-old knows so much. Well, we already told you that Luke likes to be a, a circular story, so what do you think happens next in this story? If Jesus came to Jerusalem and was received with joy, and then it, that reflects Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being received with sorrow and mourning, probably the next thing is he's going to enter in the temple, right? But do you guys think that when he enters in the temple, he's going to be received like he was when he was 12? No, right? See, there's, there's some things that are cool when you're 12 that when you're 30 are not quite as cool, right? I have, a, I have an eight-month-old. He can do things that we think is cute, that if I were to do, probably wouldn't be cute. I'm not going to go into what those things are, but if you can imagine. I know it went quick. So we're going to jump down here to verse 45. And he, being Jesus, went into the temple and began to throw those who were selling, throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. How many of you guys heard this story before? Right, this is a very popular story that we hear. Does anyone want to a answer, why did Jesus throw these people out of the temple? What were they doing? Okay, maybe. In, in the text it says that they were selling and buying. They were sinning, right? Dave, what do you got? Probably, right? There, there, we can take, we can look at this and we can have our own things of what's going on and, and probably, but let me show you one way that we can interpret scripture, which is when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, we have to then read it. 
right? And so these are actually, what Jesus says as he goes into the temple are actually quotes from two prophets in, in, in the Bible, Isaiah and Jeremiah, his, some of his favorite prophets to quote. And the, this first passage actually comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. I think I put it on the screen. If not, I can go to it. Yes. So this is Isaiah 56, and I gave you some. We went back a little bit, so this is 6 and 7. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here's the quote, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all, what? Nations. So what, Jesus, what Isaiah said is that when the Messiah comes, the house of God will not only be a house for the Jews, but it will also be a house for the Gentiles, for the foreigner, for the nations. But then if we go to Jeremiah's passage, has this house which bears my name, the temple, become a, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, it has. I have seen it too. This is the Lord's declaration. So he puts these two passages together. And what's happening in this passage for Jeremiah is they are worshiping other gods in here, and that's how it has become a den of robbers. That they are worshiping Baal earlier on in that passage. There's Baal worship going on in the temple, which is what is going on here. So let's go back to Luke. Luke chapter 19, what we just read, he went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. First of all, we got to know, there's many different courts in the temple. There's actually four different courts. The first court, which is where Jesus is at, is a court of Gentiles, which is actually a place where the Gentiles could go and worship God. The second court is a court where women could go and worship God. The third is where Israelite men could go if they were cleansed. And then the final was only the high priest could go. That was how it was. That was the day that they lived in. And so what Jesus is saying, Jesus enters in the court of the Gentiles. He enters in where this is a place where the nation should come and worship God. And what does he see? He sees something that is going on. I, I agree with Dave. I agree that, that probably what is going on is they are selling offerings to the Gentiles in a corrupt way. That they are making it more expensive that to worship God would cost more than it should. But whatever they're doing, they're not worshiping God and doing it. But again, there's something important that we must see in the mind of the Israelites as they're doing this. There is an old psalm, a psalm of Solomon. Now you may be like, what is that? That is an old apocrypha, not part of the Bible, 
writing from the, the earliest part of Jewish history that we have. And there's a psalm in there that says this. Ungird him being the Gentile, or ungird him that being the Messiah, with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. What the Jews were actually waiting for was the Messiah to come and cleanse the, the temple of Jews or Gentiles to get rid of all the Gentiles from Jerusalem. So what they expected Jesus to do would be to enter in this gate of Gentiles and say, everyone out unless you're Jewish. Only, only Jews can worship God, and if you're a Gentile, you need to get out. And for most of us in this room, that's really bad news because we're Gentiles. And yet, look at what Jesus did. What they expected Jesus to do was to cleanse Jerusalem of Gentiles. But what does he do? He cleanses the temple for Gentiles. You see, he comes in there and he says, the way you're doing it, the, you, you don't understand Isaiah. The, the temple is also meant for the Gentiles to come and worship God if they do it the right way. And so when Jesus sees that the religious leaders are taking advantage of mostly Gentiles, he is enraged and he cleans the temple of those who aren't Gentiles. Could you imagine how mad the religious leaders are at this point? Right? They're, they're obviously very frustrated. And look what he does. Verse 47 in closing, he says, Every day he was teaching in the temples. The chief priests, the, sky, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. You ever ask the question, why did Jesus, why did they want to kill Jesus? That's it. Right? Right? They expected the Messiah to come and be and fit in their box. But guess what? God does not fit in our box. Right? Like if we and, and this is not a first century Jewish problem, this is a people problem that we create these boxes that we think God is going to fit into, and he doesn't. And if we're not willing to let him destroy and cleanse that box, just like he cleansed the temple, then we might not know him. They were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. This is, I want to end right here. Where we've been, we saw Jesus in Jerusalem. We saw Jesus in the temple. But the whole point of the book of Luke is to see Jesus in our, in our hearts. And we need to ask the question that Luke is constantly asking. Who is Jesus? Right? If we jump back to the beginning part of Luke again, Luke chapter 2. There's this prophet right before he meets with Anna. There's this prophet who, his name is Simeon. And this is what he says. His father 
and mother were being amazed at what was said about him. Mary and Joseph, amazed by the prophecy right before her that Simeon gives. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary. This is, why, this is one of the reasons why I think that Mary was a source of Luke because there's a lot of input that Mary has that is not in the other gospel. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And that word thoughts is actually better translated schemes. That the schemes of hearts are going to be revealed in this child. And so let me finish with this. Who is Jesus to you reveals will be your rise or your fall. See, they had to come to a conclusion of who Jesus was, and many people in Jerusalem witnessed him being the Messiah, and they are saved by him. The world is changed because of who Jesus is, but there are also those who fall because they do not believe who Jesus is. Simeon's prophecy is spot on that there will be many who rise and fall based on who they believe Jesus is. And we are not outside of that promise. So Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and he weeps and he says, if you only knew who I was, you would save the destruction that's coming for you and that is still true for us. Do you believe who I am? Or is Jesus going to look at you and weep because of the coming destruction? Then he goes into the religious system and he says, the way you're doing it is not man, or it's not for God, it's for man. You may create rules that you think honor God, but your religion is man-made like Isaiah said. Guess what? Our religion can easily be man-made. Our religion can be about us and not about God because God cares for those who are oppressed. If we don't care for the least of these, then we may not love God if we don't love who God loves. Let him not clear out our religious system because we are against the people that God is for. I can easily be waiting for a Messiah on my terms. I can easily wait for God to work on my terms and not on his terms. Israel never again to our knowledge, worship Baal. When that was part of the trauma that there was change. But they did worship rules. And what Jesus is saying here, I believe, by his quotes of the Old Testament, is he's saying that's as bad as worshiping Baal. So I, I would imagine if I went into your house and if you went into my house, you would not find a room with a bunch of Baal idols, right? But there's a lot of other things that if you went to my house, you could see that I worship. Right? 
oftentimes comfort. Right? It's like, I want to be comfortable. The Sadducees took on the, the Greek way of living, which is look out for yourself, get as much money as you can, that's how you can be happy. True happiness is found in, the, in, in getting things. And we as Americans can oftentimes put the two worst things about the Sadducees and Pharisees and live them out, right? The Pharisees, their problem was that they created these man-made rules that they thought justified them. So what we can do sometimes, what, what we're guilty of, and what the American church oftentimes has done, is that they live life like the Sadducees, and they live for wealth and for money and for stuff. And then their religion follows the Pharisees, where they make a bunch of rules to exclude people not open up to bring people in and show them Jesus. Right? Are there, is there a point for rules? Absolutely. Right? We're, we're called to glorify God with our actions. But we also serve a God that went to the sinner and said, hey, I'm going to eat with you today. We serve a God that, that met the prostitute as she got drug out to be killed and he saved her. See, we, say, we serve a God who loves sinners, who'd be willing to clear out the temple on behalf of the Gentiles, on behalf of the sinner. Who is Jesus to us? Is he the box Jesus that we, that we access when it, it is good for us? Or is he the Jesus that cleans out, that cleanses when we need it? Right? Like that's the God we serve. The God that does not let our pride go. He cleanses us. And you know what? The cleansing of the temple was for the benefit of the Gentiles, but it was also for the benefit of the Jews because they were worshiping the wrong God. And by cleansing it, he allowed them to worship the right God. See, when he disciplines or cleanses us, He's allowing us to get rid of the idols and worship God truly. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you that you cleanse the temple on behalf of the Gentiles, not of the Gentiles. And Lord, just as we make our, these boxes that we think you fit into, Lord, just cleanse us of those boxes. Cleanse us of those idols that we make. And make us look more like you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.